We'll hear argument first this morning in number 92741, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation versus John A. Meyer. Mr. Bender. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. This case arises out of the financial failure of a large California savings and loan institution in the early 1980s. Uh, the bank had been uh, suffering very serious financial losses. Its net worth had gone down from about $100 million to about $15 million in the several months preceding the seizure of the bank. In the week preceding the seizure, but depositors removed about $70 million from the, bank, uh, from the bank's deposits. The bank was seized by the California Savings and Loan Commissioner because she thought the bank was operating in an unsafe manner. Uh, she appointed the FSLIC, FISLIC, uh, which has since been replaced by FDIC, as the receiver, and FISLIC was also appointed receiver under federal law. Under FISLIC's policy then, <clears throat> which is still FDIC's policy, when a thrift institution fails for financial reasons, they immediately terminate all the top management of the bank for obvious reasons. Uh, that's the management that got the bank into the financial condition that required the seizure. Those are the highest paid people. But perhaps most importantly, the receiver's job is either to terminate the bank or to merge it with another going institution. And for the purposes of doing that, it's very important not to have the top management there because the, uh, the, the, mer the institution into which it's merged will have its own management. Uh, pursuant to that policy, uh, the four top officers of Fidelity were terminated. Uh, the president, uh, the, the plaintiff in this case, Mr. Meyer, who is the president's brother, and two other, uh, and two other people. The bank was, what happens is they, the bank is terminated, uh, the receivership takes over at the end of one day, and at the beginning of the next day, the bank reopens as a new institution, uh, which is chartered by the Federal Home Bank Board. Uh, six months later, that new institution merged the bank into Citibank, I think, in California, and it continues to exist in that form. What position did the respondent here occupy, Mr. Bender? He was uh, the head of the branch operations. I think he was called a service manager, but his, his primary responsibility, I think, was, uh, was to be in charge of branch operations. He brought a lawsuit uh, based on many different claimed rights. Uh, the only ones which proceeded to trial were claims not of a breach of contract, but claims under the Due Process Clause. The lawsuit was based on an alleged uh, implied contract of continued employment which he said that California law gave him as a long-term employee of the bank. Uh, but he didn't, the, the suit that got to trial before the jury was not a suit based on the breach of contract. It was a suit based on the alleged deprivation of his contract rights without due process. He if, says... May I, may I interrupt you, sir? If he had been fired by the bank, if there hadn't been the takeover, would, have he, would he have had a contract claim under state law against the bank? If the bank had continued to operate and he had been fired, yes, so far as we can tell, uh, he, he would have... He did have a right under his contract to pre, in effect, to pre-deprivation process then? No, I don't think it was a right to process. It was a contract right. If the bank had continued... No, but his due process claim was that he didn't get pre-deprivation uh, process. Would he have had a, a, a contract claim uh, to the same effect against the bank? No, I think the contract claim would have just been for breach of his contract of employment. Uh, he makes no suggestion, and I know nothing in California contract law that would suggest he had any procedural rights. His remedy under California contract law would have been a suit for breach of contract against the bank for terminating him without just cause. That's not the suit that he brought here. 
The suit that he has recovered on, a jury, uh, the two suits that went to the jury were a claim against FDIC for the deprivation of his property without due process and a claim against the receiver uh, for deprivation of his property, his contract right without due process. The jury found for the receiver on the ground that he had qualified immunity. Uh, but the jury found uh, for, the F, for the plaintiff against FDIC in the amount of $130,000. Bender, he didn't have a uh, state law tort claim, did he? He brought state law tort claims, but they didn't proceed to, uh, to trial. They were dismissed by the trial judge. But as we, we analyze the case, don't we assume he has no tort remedy as a matter of state law? It goes to the question of cog- whether it's cognizable and so forth. I don't think... I don't think it matters whether he has a tort remedy under, uh, under state law. Uh, the particular if tort remedy... If he tort remedy, couldn't it arguably be said then the Federal Tort Claims Act would provide? Well, if he, had, if he had a tort remedy under state law, he could try to assert that state law tort remedy against the federal government under, uh, under the Federal Tort Claims Act. But that's not the right he alleges in this case. Here he's alleging a violation of his federal constitutional rights. Uh, it, about your argument that there is no due process right of the nature claim. Wouldn't that go to the receiver, Petulo, as well as to the Pislik? Yes. Yes, so, I would. So your position, if, if you would prevail on that second argument that you make, that there is no due process right to tenure as against this federal agency, then Petulo should never have gone to trial that's right. Not, you would never get to the question of qualified right. immunity. This case should have been dismissed before trial because uh, there was no deprivation of property, uh, nor even if there was a deprivation of property, it wasn't without due process. And let, well, let me turn to that first because I think that's really the most fundamental question in this case. There was no deprivation of property because the only property right he asserts, the right to continued employment, ended by virtue of the failure of the bank and its seizure by the receiver. Uh, when the bank fails and it's seized by the receiver, it's just as if the bank had itself gone out of business. Uh, Mr. Pender, uh, the first question you present in your petition for certiorari is whether uh, the FISLIC can be held liable for tort damages arising uh, on a, a Bivens cause of action. Now, you're, you're choosing, I take it, the second question you present first? Yes, I think it's a little easier to understand the case if you understand first what the tort right is, what the constitutional tort right is that he's, uh, that he's asserting. But I take it you're also going to argue eventually. You're Absolutely. Both points are important and both points are raised by the case. Either one is sufficient to dispose of the case. If he worked for the bank with a contract of, an implied contract of continued employment and the bank went out of business for financial reasons, I don't think anyone would think that he had a right of continued employment with a bank which had failed and was no longer in business. And that's exactly what happens when a bank goes into receivership. You can tell that by the notion, the common law notion of receivership, which was, has been absorbed into the federal statutes, cases going way back, including decisions of this court that we cited. Does this California law agree with that? In other words, if there is a receivership of a business in California law, there's uh, an absolute right to terminate all the employees and hire new ones? Because we, th- new we think so, but it, that's irrelevant because federal law clearly supersedes California law. And the receiver here was appointed under federal law. Remember, this is a bank insured by the well, federal government. Well, but your, your theory is, is that the, the, uh, the, the company has gone out of business. Uh, and I, I just have some trouble with that. Uh, most receiverships, uh, including FDIC, operate the business uh, on, a, on, a, on a routine basis, subject to the 
supervision of, of, of the FDIC? Could they fire all the janitors because they didn't like the way they parted their hair? In fact, FDIC now has a policy of firing all employees immediately upon the uh, onset of the receivership and hiring back those that it wants to hire back to would do whatever the bank wants to do. I think it's a mistake to assume that the bank always continues operating in exactly the same form. Uh, the, ba- the receiver has the right to terminate, wind up the affairs of the bank. He has the right to consolidate consolidate or merge it with another bank is a right to, to uh, draw it in, draw it in its scope of operations to make it profitable. Uh, new management takes over. The receiver feels that they need new management in order to accomplish those things. And to have the old top management staying on in the bank as you're trying to merge it with another bank, which they may have resisted doing for a number of years, uh, as you're trying to uh, wind up its affairs would be really disruptive. Perhaps so, but, but, but uh, why is it so that... Uh uh, you would be without liability for breaking those contracts uh, any more than you would be without liability for breaking other contracts. You, you certainly don't don't say that money that the bank owes to some people is no longer owed because the bank is now out of existence, no. right? No, it's a really it's good point. It's just a contract like that, I assume. No, it's not. They're, they're, I think you have to distinguish between two different kinds of contracts. For example, if this employee had accrued vacation pay coming to him, mm-hmm. or perhaps even accrued severance pay, that he would be entitled to, because that is pay for past services. And similarly, a company that had supplied desks, let's say, to the bank, which already had them, and they hadn't paid the bill yet, that company would be entitled to recover that out of the assets of the bank. Suppose it was a contract to provide desks, uh, not not just uh, in the past, but in the future. Wouldn't wouldn't you be liable for the profit that is lost? It's It's quite clear that the receiver has the power to terminate uh, those kinds of executory contracts which haven't yet taken place. At that time, the, the regulation said that the receiver had the power to reject or repudiate any lease or contract which it considers burdensome. W- without liability? Without liability for future profits, without liability for services that, uh, that had not been rendered. It can repudiate contracts for past services where the money had already been earned, and then there would be liability. It would be contract liability, and it would be contract liability that would come out of the remaining assets of that bank, not liability that would be paid by the assets of the federal government. Well, it doesn't make much sense to talk about repudiating past uh, liability for past contractual breaches, does it? I mean, you're going to be held liable on a contract measure of damages whether you technically repudiate the thing or just admit you didn't perform. That's right. And so the the main burden of the repudiation clause, it seems to me, has to be toward these future contracts. Uh, If you were going to let him recover on that contract, how much could he recover? Well, but, I mean, you you can say repudiate any businessman. Any businessman can repudiate a contract, but the issue is whether you're liable for for the money under it. To say you can repudiate it doesn't establish that you're not liable for the breach. But maybe the most fundamental point is if you're liable, you're liable only on contract. Uh, out of the assets of the bank. That's not the claim that Mr. Meyer has brought here. Even if he did have a contract right, it would be a right that was enforceable only by a suit for breach of contract, and that suit would be payable only out of the remaining net assets of the bank. So if the bank, in fact, had no net assets, he wouldn't get any money. What he has tried to do here is to turn that contract suit out of no, which would have to be paid out of no assets, into a suit where he wants to be paid from the taxpayer's money uh, through the federal appropriations, through the F, uh, FDIC or, or FISLIC, uh, by saying that I'm not suing on the contract, I'm suing for the breach of the contract without due process, as if he had a constitutional right to a hearing so before it's that. not an essential part of your case, and you don't really argue here that... Uh, 
that when there is a repudiation, there is necessarily no liability for the, for the breach of, of future obligations? Not at all. Okay. Um, uh, although we do feel that there is no liability for the future work he was going to do, that the contract terminates. If you want to, you could look at it this way. When that contract... I don't have to agree with that. No, you don't have to agree with that. I, I suppose it's, it's perhaps restating the same point that I take it you're not claiming that uh, that the government is got free here of liability on the claim asserted simply because it was acting as a regulator and not as a, as a mere successor to the originally contracting party. No, no, we're not arguing that at all. We're arguing that the government here did not deprive him of his property without due process, first because we don't think he had any property, but if, as Justice Scalia believes, he, uh, you think he was deprived of property, that was still not without due process because, because he has a completely adequate remedy, the normal remedy, the remedy he would have had if the bank had terminated him itself, namely to sue the bank under California law of contract, which he is able so to isn't do. Isn't there an inconsistency in your position, Mr. Bender, because you say that the receiver's rights are not dependent on state law, and that presume that it, it has rights coming from the federal regulations and that sort of thing, and yet his remedy is, is purely state law. Well, because the receivership doesn't, although the receivership has the power, federal law has the power to totally supersede state law. Uh, it hasn't done that. And it's clear that the receivership uh, permits suits to be brought against the remaining assets of the bank for contracts on which the, uh, uh, the money had already been earned, such as contracts for past services. If federal law tried to wipe out those contracts as well, I think there would be a problem with the takings clause. Uh, in any event, the receiver has never, uh, has never, as far as I know, has never alleged that that happened. The is the process that is due is the claim that can be asserted uh, against the assets of the, uh, the failed right. association. Exactly. And, and that is the, the full extent of the process that's constitutionally exactly. due. Right. That's all the process he would have had due uh, if the bank had gone out of business itself or if the bank had fired him. And there's absolutely no reason why he should suddenly get an entry into the federal treasury because the bank goes into receivership. His rights kind of ironic that management that would uh, would run a bank and run it into the ground so that the depositors lose all their money except for the federal insurance should then be able to give, have a key into the federal treasury to recover on contracts that they couldn't recover on against the bank. But Mr. Bender, isn't it at least theoretically possible that even if he had a state law right to uh, recover assets from the bank, which in turn would give him a right to a pre-termination hearing, maybe he would lose against the uh, on, a, on a state contract claim, but nevertheless be able to argue that if you'd given me the hearing to which I was entitled, I could have persuaded you not to fire me because I really wasn't involved in all this stuff. He can argue that, and he does, but that is not a, uh, that is not a convincing argument because the federal law made clear at the time, then in the regulations, now in the statute, that the receiver can repudiate any contract which it considers burdensome. I think you can't read language like that to say that that's something you have a hearing over and an adjudication over. It's any repudiated contract that the receiver considers burdensome. It's in the sole discretion of the receiver, and it has to be. Uh, if you seize a bank with 20 or 30 top management people, uh, and you have to give them all hearings before you can terminate their services and move on with the business of reorganizing the bank, that's going to make receiverships much less efficient. The whole purpose of these receiverships is to go into a failing institution and save what's still there 
for the depositors and for the federal taxpayers. To have to go through a bunch of hearings, and then once you have the initial hearing, there will probably be asserted a right to some kind of review of the question of whether this is a burdensome contract. Those are not questions that the receiver is easily going to be able to, uh, to answer in a short period of time before an independent hearing examiner. Do ordinary federal agencies have to do that? I mean, let's assume a regular federal agency wants to terminate a contract. Does it have to give a due process hearing? I don't think so. Uh, because uh, the, the right to recover uh, damages for the breach of contract uh, is, uh, is the process that is due in the commercial world. You're dealing here with, uh, with the FDIC and, and FISLIC, and let me move now to the, to the second part of our argument. Before you do, let me just ask one question. In, in the normal government situation, supposing the head of the agency has the right to terminate the employment of anyone whom he thinks is not performing adequately in his sole discretion with no review, but he has to make a determination he's not performing adequately. Right to a hearing or no? You're talking about a federal agency? Yes. I think that if the statute makes it clear that it's in his sole discretion, then there wouldn't be a right to a hearing. The, the cases in which this court has found there were rights to hearings, cases in where the statute said you can be fired but only for cause. Uh, I don't think we have cases in which the state law which creates these property rights made it clear that it was in the sole discretion of the person. It's like a contract at will. Uh, once the bank goes into the receivership, the employment of the, of the people who work for the bank is employment at will. The receiver can terminate it at any time, just like a private employer could. Mr. Bender, you will get to your first point. I'm about to, uh, I hope. Uh, 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 the question here is whether, if there were a constitutional right in this case, a violation of, uh, of procedural due process, there would be a suit against the FDIC, the, uh, the successor of, uh, of FISLIC. The only ground for urging that there would be such a suit is the sue-and-be-sued clause uh, of, uh, of the agencies. Uh, if an if uh, official in the Department of Justice were to commit a constitutional violation, there's no suit against the Department of Justice for that. It has no sue-and-be-sued clause. There's no suit. It's clearly established against the United States for Bivens-type constitutional tort action. So the only way that the plaintiff can claim here that there's any uh, ability to recover against, uh, against FDIC for the constitutional tort is because of the sue-and-be-sued clause. I think if you just, even if you just had the sue-and-be-sued clause, you would have to hold that that does not authorize constitutional torts. Uh, suits for constitutional torts. The sue-and-be-sued clauses were to enable these entities to engage in, in commerce in the commercial marketplace. And they were meant to be able to sue and be sued on ordinary commercial kinds of causes of action, contracts and torts growing out of the running of a private business. So, so, you, so you say we reached that result without even uh, referring to the Federal Tort Claims Act, just the sue right. and be sued clause alone, and is, is that some implied exemption we yes. read into the language? Yes. That's intuitive. We, we know that, that intuitively it means sue and be sued commercially. That's the, that was the reason for the creation of the sue and be sued liability. But you don't have to reach that here because Congress clarified that, made that absolutely clear. Well, we might not have to reach it, but we have to understand it, I think, to follow your argument. Right. No, you don't. Uh, you could, uh, even if you thought that constitutional torts could come under the general sue-and-be-sued language, Congress has made it clear that they, it, it doesn't intend that they do by specific language in the Federal Tort Claims Act. But I do think it's important to recognize that the sue-and-be-sued authority is not just an open-ended, I don't think it was intended to be an open-ended sue-and-be-sued authority. It was intended to facilitate the operation of these agencies in the commercial marketplace. And I don't think you should in infer a waiver of sovereign immunity uh, for a wholly different kind of thing 
a, a tort action growing implied by the court out of the Constitution from that sue-and-be-sued authority. But Congress made it entirely clear that that's what it was thinking in the enactment of the Federal Tort Claims Act. Well, what, what about a false imprisonment claim? Would that be under the sue-and-be-sued clause? Or is that outside of the commercial realm? I mean, this is a very difficult jurisprudence you're asking us to adopt. I don't think so. Uh, if the tort claim comes under state law, then I think it can be made against the agency under the sue-and-be-sued clause. But I don't think the sue-and-be-sued clauses were meant to create liability in those agencies arising out of the federal constitution. So in your ordinary false imprisonment case, there's probably a state law claim, uh, which is the same kind of a claim which could be brought against a private company. Uh, that's the, the test I'm asking you to use. The kinds of claims that could be brought against a private company were the kinds of claims that were intended to be authorized by the sue-and-be-sued clause. Is it part of your argument that the Bivens claim simply doesn't extend to agencies as distinguished from individuals, so that in no case, forgetting about the sue-and-be-sued clause, should one think of the Bivens claim as against an entity as distinguished from an individual? That's right. Um, and that's because there are only two kinds of agencies. Uh, the ones without sue-and-be-sued clauses, it's clear that they cannot be sued. You'd have to sue the United States, and it's plain you cannot sue the United States on a Bivens-type tort. The other kinds of agencies are the sue-and-be-sued agencies, and there Congress made it clear in the Tort Claims Act that it wanted to make the tort liability of sue-and-be-sued agencies exactly the same as the tort liability of other agencies. I thought your argument went beyond that. I, I thought you were also arguing that even without the Federal Tort Claims Act and even without the sue-and-be-sued argument, there simply is no such thing as a Bivens action that is against the government and not against a private individual. That's right. There is. Did you make that argument below as well, or is that being made for the first time here? I believe we made that argument below. Yes, I don't think it's being made for the first time here. That argument was certainly made in the petition for certiorari, and there was no claim that it had not been made below. Mr. Bender, the sue-and-be-sued clause came in when, as opposed to when the Bivens claim was created? I think it's important to understand that. The sue-and-be-sued clauses were first. Many of them were first. And by the time of the Tort Claims Act in 1946, there had been a number of tort suits brought against the sue-and-be-sued agencies, state law tort suits, because there were no Bivens claims at that time. In enacting the Federal Tort Claims Act, Congress said the government, the federal government, is now going to be liable on the torts of all federal agencies, sue-and-be-sued or not, with certain important limitations. And at the same time, it said, in the statute that is now 2679, uh, a, it said that the sue-and-be-sued agencies should also not be sued, and all tort claims should be brought against the federal government. And the legislative history, let me read you a brief excerpt of the, of the committee report that accompanied that statute. It says, Section 404, that's the, the predecessor of the statute we now have, provides that federal agencies suable in their own name prior to the enactment of this bill will no longer be suable for torts cognizable under that bill. This will place torts of suable agencies as the United States on precisely the same footing as torts of non-suable agencies. I don't see any way you can read that language except to say that you could no longer sue the sue-and-be-sued agencies for torts. language in the legislative history is not in the statute itself. Well, I think the language in the statute itself is just as clear because it refers to, uh, it says the authority... 
of any federal agency to sue and be sued in its own name shall not be construed to authorize suits against such federal agency on claims which are cognizable under the Tort Claims Act. And it's clear from the legislative history that when they said claims cognizable under the Tort Claims Act, they meant all tort claims. Well, except that that was pre-Bivens. Right. That was pre-Bivens. And that statement was true pre-Bivens. It was quite true pre-Bivens. Well, it wasn't true before the Tort Claims Act. Before the Tort Claims Act, you could sue the the sue-and-be-sued agencies under tort. And so Congress was clearly doing something important here. I understand, but but, but pre-Bivens, and and given the the new enactment of the Tort Claims Act, that statement of legislative history would be quite true. But it it says nothing about what the effect of that act would be after you have Bivens. All right, and then the question for this Court is, when the Court creates the Bivens cause of action, finds the Bivens cause of action in the Constitution, is that now going to be the only tort claim that you can bring against the agencies, uh, even though you can't bring it against the United States? I think well, Bivens... The claim is, is not cognizable under 1346B. No, I think by cognizable under 1346B, they meant tort claims. Otherwise, they could not possibly have said what they say in the next sentence of the committee report. This will place torts of suable agencies on precisely the same footing as torts of non-suable agencies. Yeah, you're referring to legislative history, legislative history prior to Bivens? Yes, right. And and you're simply reading out of the statute the the description of of the, the government's liability as if it were a private party. I mean, no. that, that, that qualification isn't in the legislative history you were reading, but it is in the statute. And, and, and that is what excludes its reference to Bivens, because there is no analogous private liability. That's right. But it's still a tort claim cognizable under the Tort Claims Act for purposes of... Uh, how, how do you define claim? cognizable to reach this conclusion? I define it as a tort claim. No, the, the, the word cognizable doesn't mean tort claim. What, what? Well, it says cognizable under the Tort Claims Act, which I think means recognizable under the Tort Claims Act. That's the most natural meaning of the word, which I think means a tort claim. Well, how can it be cognizable uh, if, the, if the court doesn't even have jurisdiction under the statute? Well, take, for example, a case of the post office negligent delivery of mail. You cannot recover under the Tort Claims Act for that. There's a specific exception. And yet everyone agrees that that's cognizable under the Tort Claims Act, even though it's specifically excluded, because it's a tort claim. And Congress... Well, because it has a state analog for private parties, which a constitutional tort doesn't. Right. And, but just, that's, uh, that's a different reason. Here, uh, there they exclude it because they don't want the post office burdened with that liability. Here they exclude it because they don't want the federal government burdened with liability, unless it's the kind of liability that a, uh, an entity would be subject to under state law. Just because it's a different reason for Congress excluding it, it's still an exclusion. And it's well, clear that many things excluded. Mr. Bender, I mean, if you just read the plain language of the statute, I think you have a hard time reaching your interpretation of what cognizable I th- means. I think if all you had was the language of the statute, there would be a, a difficulty in, in reading it that way. But when you start to think about it and realize that a suit against the post office for negligent delivery of mail cannot be successfully brought under the Tort Claims Act, nevertheless, it is held cognizable. You can't sue, uh, you can't sue a sue and be sued. The post office is a sue and be sued agency. That's, that's this court's determination? What is Have we said that it's cognizable? That that, that is that that instance no. that you gave is cognizable? We, is it your position that this is the respondent's concession? No, I think it's clear in you all... Everybody agrees that this is cognizable. It seems to me that's the issue in the case. I don't think respondent agrees with it. I that. think everybody agrees that you cannot sue the United States Postal Service for negligent delivery of the, the mail. Question is, does everybody agree that that's what cognizable means? 
No, this is the first case to raise that. Mr. Bender, what you're, you, you're making the argument that Congress really meant to bracket sue-and-be-sued agencies with all other agencies for Tort Claims Act purposes, but they, they used uh, incomplete language, so the Court should kind of fix up the language and... Not incomplete. It's not as exact as we would like it to be. It's somewhat uncertain what cognizable means, but I think when you start to think about the consequences of holding that it means that it's only those cases you could succeed under the Tort Claims Act under, you will realize it can't mean, cognizable can't mean claims you can win under the Tort Claims Act. No, but it could mean claims that have a counterpart in state law. It could mean claims that have a counterpart in state law. That's true. But Bivens, then, I think, makes clear that you shouldn't assume, uh, you shouldn't uh, imply a cause of action against the agency. Bivens itself said that there are certain factors counseling hesitation uh, in creating Bivens actions. And one of them, the first one Justice Brennan mentioned there, was an impact on the federal fisc. And you couldn't get a clearer case of an impact on the federal fisc than the tort action in this case. And so even if you think that it would be possible to imply some kinds of Bivens actions against federal agencies, although we don't think you should, uh, you certainly would not imply one in this kind of situation where it is a direct attack on the federal treasury and exactly the kind of action that, uh, that Bivens says uh, you should also counsel hesitation that you'd have this anomaly of the difference between the sue and be sued agencies and other agencies. I think it does. I think Congress made clear that it wanted all the, that in tort cases, it wanted all the agencies to be treated the same. And I think the court should hesitate before creating a major exception to that kind of. They didn't make clear that it wanted, even if you read the legislative history, they just made clear that that, they thought that was the effect of what they were doing. I mean, had they said the object of this legislation is, it didn't say that, it just said it will do this. May I answer Justice Scalia's question? I think when you read the legislative history, you'll see that one of their objectives, not just the result of what they were doing, but one of their objectives was to unify the procedure so all federal agencies would be treated the same for the purposes of tort claims. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Bender. Uh, Mr. Felice, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, counsel suggests that there is a rule somewhere that the FSLIC will terminate all top-level management uh, when a savings and loan is, uh, is seized. It's interesting the Council suggests that. That rule is written in no regulation, no policy manual, no document anywhere. That was the excuse that was given when we filed this lawsuit and when uh, we went to the person that actually made the decision with respect to Mr. Meyer and told us that's why that decision was made, because he was a top-level manager. It turns out that there were a number of top-level managers at Fidelity Savings that were not terminated. What about the regulation that allows the receiver to terminate a contract that he deems burdensome? Yes, that, that regulation exists, uh, and uh, the thrust of our case, Mr. Chief Justice, is that Mr. Meyer was entitled to due process in the decision-making process that led to the, de to the determination that his contract was burdensome. This court has said, and on a number of occasions, that where an administrative rule permits the deprivation of a liberty or property interest, the impacted individual has a right to notice and an opportunity to be heard. So that would be true of any employee that the receiver came in and decided to fire for the good of the institution. Every one of them would have a right to notice and an opportunity for hearing and presumably a right to pursue in court any claim that they had. Not an opportunity for a hearing, Your Honor. We believe that the due process required was not elaborate. We believe he was entitled to notice and a reasonable opportunity to give reasons 
in writing or in person as to why he should not have been terminated. And I assume that's true for all government contracts. The federal government, unlike the private business managers, can't uh, come to the conclusion uh, on its own that this contract is no longer worth it. It has to give some some rudimentary notice and opportunity for hearing to all people that have contracts with Not necessarily so, Justice Scalia. In this particular case, Mr. Meyer had a property interest, and I will describe where his property interest came from, and the regulation in question said not that immediately upon the seizure that Mr. Meyer's contract interest ceased to exist, but rather his contract ceased to exist when and if it was found to be burdensome. Council has suggested that regulation, the regulation now is that all employees are terminated at the time of seizure. Under that regulation, perhaps Mr. Meyer wouldn't have a claim. But under the regulation, in effect, at the time of this seizure, there had to be a determination that his contract was burdensome. Well, you're, then you're, you're not claiming a violation of the Constitution, but just of the regulation. You're saying the Constitution doesn't require such a hearing, but you only have the right to the hearing by reason of the regulation? No, we are saying that under Board of Regents versus Roth, we look not to the Constitution to define Mr. Meyer's property interests. Instead, we look to independent sources such as state law. State law in this circumstance, under California law, Mr. Meyer had an implied employment contract that he would not be terminated absent just cause for dismissal. And that implied employment contract was consistent with, in effect, was ratified and permitted by federal regulations at the time, which were also different at that time. At that time, the federal regulation provided that employees of savings and loans could have contracts and they would not be deemed to be an unsafe or unsound practice so long as they had an adequate, appropriate termination for cause provision. So the federal regulation contemplated that there could be employment contracts with employees of savings and loans that had exactly what the California implied contract had. The federal law is more favorable to the employee. It says you must show that it's unsafe or unsound. We must find it burdensome. The federal law is more favorable. Then there is a constitutional right, but if the federal law is harsher and just says everyone goes, there is no constitutional right. That's a strange... I don't believe that is strange, Your Honor, because if you look at Roth, which is the touchstone of the property interest we're talking about, it talks about reasonable expectations of the employee. And if you go to a savings and loan today and get a job, you know, under regulations that I, as I understand them, that your job is forever subject to being terminated immediately upon a seizure. But at that time, federal regulations provided that you could have an employment contract with your employer, and it was not prohibited so long as there was an adequate termination for cause provision. So when you're hired by the state entity, by this savings and loan, you're to determine the nature of your property interest, you're looking to the day when that institution is going to go under and be taken over by a federal receiver, and, and that's... I believe that in, in really is a legal fiction, but what you look to under Roth versus Board of Regents to define the property interest that Mr. Meyer is asserting is independent sources such as state law, which define, which, which first of all create the property right, and at the same time, define its scope. And California law defined the scope of this property interest as a right to continued employment absent just cause for dismissal, and that definition was completely consistent with federal law on point. So, that, so our argument is that Mr. Meyer had a property interest defined by California law, and also that that property interest did not cease to exist at the moment of regulatory seizure... You at, 
I'm sorry, you finish your sentence. As apparently it, w it would now, Justice Souter. Is, do, you, do, you, do you claim that the, uh, that the state law has anything to do by way, of, uh, by way of law or analogy with defining the degree of process that you are entitled to and protection of the right? No. I believe that once you have defined the property interest, as you do by looking at state law, then you look at the U.S. Constitution and, and the rulings of this court to see what you are entitled to. Now, in, in deciding that, should, should we, uh, could we reasonably ask the question what process he would have had against the bank as a private entity uh, if, uh, if the bank had simply terminated him prior to the, uh, to the uh, assumption by FDIC or whatever of, of uh, the receivership? I'm not sure that that is a relevant question because, because that's not, not... You should assume it's a relevant question since it was asked by a member of the... <laughs> I'm sorry, Chief Justice. I'm not sure that that question is critical to our analysis of the case. Well, well said. Because, because the definition of Mr. Meyer's property right was that he was entitled to continued employment absent just cause for dismissal. And so when, when the savings and loan was taken over, at that point in time, he had an interest in continued employment, the same as if he had had a written contract that said that he wouldn't be discharged except for just cause. Let me ask you a different uh, question. Well, uh, could, could I follow on this sure. one before you let him off? Uh, I, 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 really, I really don't, don't follow it. it. It seems to me you, you've looked to the state to find the property right, and you claim to be looking to the Constitution for finding the procedural right, which is the basis of your suit. But when I ask you, where is that procedural right in the Constitution? Because if it's there, everybody who has a contract with the government would have it. You fall back upon the regulation. And you no. say, well, the regulation entitles you to this procedure. Where, where do you get the constitutional right just by virtue of having the state property right and without adversion to the regulation? The, the, the constitutional right, Justice Scalia, comes from the Fifth Amendment. And when we are looking at property interests in employment, there's no question the court has said this on numerous occasions, that you look to independent sources such as state law. So this is an employment case. For the property, not for what procedure is due. That's correct. Okay. And then the procedure that is due, you look to the Fifth Amendment and you look to this court's rulings in a number of cases, the most recent one being Burns versus United States, that says where an administrative regulation permits the government to take property or, or to deprive, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be a taking, to deprive somebody or a, of a uh, liberty or property interest, that person should be entitled to due process. And if you tacked on to the state-created property right, the federal regulation, you said you have to judge it by this man's expectancy, and his expectancy at the time was that you would have this state law right to employment and tacked on to that this federal regulation that says can't get rid of you unless it's unduly burdensome or whatever. So you are, you're not relying just on the state law to create this right that attracts the due process guarantee. You, you said it's state law plus federal regulation. You need the federal regulation in there to create that right. I believe that we need to have a federal regulation which permits California to imply that contract right. I believe that if the federal regulation said, as it apparently does today, that employees of savings and loans can never have any contract except for uh, at-will employment, then I don't believe that California, 
un, under, under the Supremacy Clause could say, no, we're going to allow these uh, contracts to be other than at will. You know, we've had so many discussions about what is the, this, the contours of this right. Uh, it occurred to me that the qualified immunity defense that was available to Petullo, why wasn't that available to, uh, to the FISLIC as well? Well, first of all, the qualified immunity defense was not submitted, uh, not pled, not raised as a defense by FISLIC. Secondly, however, I would say that uh, insofar as sue and be sued agencies are concerned, the qualified immunity doctrine should not be applied because the rationale of the qualified immunity doctrine is to protect federal employees from personal liability so that they will zealously uh, complete their tasks where you're talking about an agency and, and where you are saying an agency should have appropriate constitutional safeguards and what it does, you don't have the same concerns that are raised by the qualified immunity doctrine and indeed you have the converse. You, I think, would like to encourage federal agencies to comply with constitutional that, norms. That, that Congress has made all other agencies totally immune. Well, Congress... That's my... What sense does it make to say that this agency, unlike the individual, is liable without a qualified immunity defense and all other agencies are totally immune? Well, I would say that there is some sense in this sense. This agency was an independent corporation that had both government and non-governmental funds, that operated with its own board of directors, that had, uh, that had its own budget, that was authorized to commit corporate funds for various ex expenses. So this agency, in fact, is different than, than a standard uh, agency that is not an independent sue-and-be-sued corporate uh, agency. I think there is a difference between this agency and other governmental agencies. Have we ever held an agency liable on a, on a Bivens cause of action as opposed to individuals? You, you have not, Your Honor, uh, and I don't think you have been asked to do that so far as I can tell. I take it you're asking us to in this case. Yes, we are. And the reason why we are, other, uh, if I can move on to the sue and be sued uh, argument that, that, that we've gotten. Uh, that can we've I ask you one question before you do? Yes. It, it's not going to work into your argument later on. Uh, you're not depending on state law as the source of the process that is due, and you're not depending on the federal regs as the source for the process is, that is due. Uh, you're saying the process that is due somehow should be appropriate to, to the state law contract right, property right, and that is a right to continued employment in the absence of, of cause to discharge. Why then do you say that the, uh, that the process that is due uh, includes merely a right on the part of the employee to say why he shouldn't be discharged as opposed to an obligation on the government to establish that cause for why he should be? It seems to me the only reason to make that, uh, uh, to, to choose the former rather than the latter is it's probably a little, may look a little easier to win the case. It puts less of a burden on the government, but I don't see in principle why you take that position. Well, Your Honor, I, I, I said it that way, and let, let, me, let me just make clear what our position is. We do not doubt the broad discretion of the FSLIC during a regulatory takeover to terminate those contracts, leases, employment contracts, whatever, that it considers burdensome. We believe, however, that Mr. Meyer, having a constitutionally protected property interest as defined uh, by state law, was entitled to notice and a reasonable opportunity to be heard in uh, person or in writing why that action should not be taken. 
I don't know that I have made it, that I have a position on who should bear the burden of proof in that regard. I, I mistook you, I'm sorry. I would say, however, that we do not gain state the government's right, broad right, uh, to uh, act boldly when, the, when there's an FSLIC takeover of a uh, savings and loan that has fi uh, financial problems. Let me, let me turn briefly to the... Uh, but when you were talking about the scope of this, you didn't mean to imply that, that this would be a right that all employees would have. You have to have somebody who has a kind of a tenure ex expectancy. Is that... That, that, that's, that's correct. And apparently, uh, the way the government now operates, probably nobody could make this claim because the way the government now operates, apparently, you can, you can only have an at-will employment contract with a savings and loan. Uh, to, to move on to the uh, sue and be sued language, we, we believe that the government's argument is a circular argument with respect to the sue and be sued language. The government identifies the appropriate statutes, and the issue boils down to whether this action is cognizable, not under the, not under the Federal Tort Claims Act, as Mr. Bender said, the 2679A says the issue is whether it is cognizable under 1346B. And 1346B does not say torts, as the government would wish it says. 1346B says that actions cognizable under the Federal Tort Claims Actions are those actions for which a private individual would be liable under local law. I don't believe we need to go beyond the wording of the statute to look at the legislative history to interpret that plain language. FSL, the, the sue and be sued clause and the, and the uh, Federal Tort Claims Act draw the same distinction that we wish to draw. That is, common law torts are covered by the Federal Tort Claims Act, but those actions that are other than common law torts are not cognizable, and if there is an appropriate sue and be sued clause, that gives jurisdiction against the sue and be sued agency. May, I, may I just make, make uh, one, uh, ask one point? If we agree with the government that this claim must be brought under 1346B or not at all, and if we say there's no Bivens action against a federal agency, is that the end of your case? In other words, if you say that the sue and be sued clause does not waive sovereign immunity? Yes. Except to the extent that it's waived in 1346B. Um, I believe that probably would be the end of our case. However, I would like to point out that in the footnote in our brief, we make the point that a number of judicial writers have commented that sovereign immunity as a doctrine should not really be applied in cases of constitutional torts. Sovereign immunity does not retain its medieval connotation that the sovereign cannot be sued merely because the king can do no and, wrong. And you wipe out the entire, the Federal Tort Claims Act is beside the point because the immunity, we should go back and rethink the entire immunity doctrine. But even if you, even if we did that, you have a problem of extending Bivens to an agency, something you've conceded, conceded has never been done before. Why aren't there the factors the council hesitation here against extending Bivens to an agency when that's never been done before, when it's going when the when the payment will have to come out of the federal fisc, 
as distinguished from an individual's pocket? I don't believe, Your Honor, that in fact this case is very different than the majority of Bivens cases in that what we are talking about is an indirect impact on the federal fisc. Bivens defendants are routinely provided indemnity by their federal employers. That is an indirect impact on the federal fisc. This would also be an indirect impact in that FSLIC, this would not be a judgment against the United States. This would be a judgment against the FSLIC, an independent corporation, having its own budget, having sources of funds that are both private and public. So I believe that both the standard Bivens action against an individual and a Bivens action against a sue and be sued agency would in fact only have an indirect uh, impact on the federal treasury. Well, except the, there is one difference, and that is uh, the, the, the federal government chooses for whatever reason voluntarily to pay in the one case, and it doesn't choose in the other. Well, the, the question, the, the, the issue of what is appropriate for the court is, is what is it in, in uh, recognizing a Bivens action is, is a question of what is it uh, appropriate for the court to do in imposing liability involuntarily. And, and you're suggesting an analogy with, with, with liability voluntarily assumed. I don't, I don't see the point. Well, it is voluntarily assumed uh, only with a gun in its head, so to speak. In other words, the, when, well, when, where, where does the gun come from? They don't have to reimburse these people. Well, the gun comes from the practical consideration that if the federal government, after the creation of Bivens, then, ma then had a policy that it was not going to indemnify or provide a defense, which is another expense, to any of its employees that were charged with Bivens' actions, that would cause a tremendous morale problem among federal employees and would be, in a practical sense, an impossible situation. So, well, in fact, it, it might cause timidity, and that may be why the government wants to pay the bill. I can understand that. But it still is a voluntary assumption of a responsibility. Well, it, it, it's voluntary in a sense, but it would cause timidity or, or lack of zealousness in government employees or lack of morale. And so, in a sense, when, when the court came down with the Bivens decision, it wasn't directly impacting the federal fisc, but in a practical sense, it was indirectly impacting the federal fisc because it would be hard for me to believe that the government would ever take the position that it is never going to provide a defense, let alone indemnity, on every Bivens claim, no matter how specious the claim is. Of Mr. Course Mr. You uh, Felice, uh, the government says, I think with some reason, that your argument about cognizability based on 1346 runs contrary to our decision in Smith. Well, what is your answer to that? Your decision in Smith uh, dealt with the 1988 legislation, the 1988 Federal Employees Reform Act, which was in turn a response to your Westfall decision. Your Westfall decision dealt with federal employee liability, and it dealt with liability for common law torts. That was the problem that Congress was looking at when it passed that 1988 legislation. It was looking at a situation involving federal employees and common law torts. Congress made no attempt in the 1988 legislation, which you then construed in Smith, to look one way or the other at sue and be sued clauses, let alone federal agencies. And indeed, if we look at what Congress did, I believe it is more consistent with our position. Namely, what Congress did in the 1988 legislation was they drew a distinction between common law torts and constitutional torts and said common law torts are cognizable under the Federal Torts Claims Act, 
and constitutional well, but, torts are not. That's your theory, and you know, it may be factually distinguishable from Smith, but certainly the entire analysis of Smith suggests that your definition of cognizable is, is too narrow. Well, as the Court of Appeals noted, it is difficult to interpret the sounds of legislative silence. In, in, in the 1988 legislation, and what the government is talking about and seeking to draw conclusions from, the, government, the, the Congress did not, in fact, pass a completely symmetrical statute. In other words, they dealt with employees, but they didn't deal with agencies. I'm not talking about the legislative history of, 19, of what happened in 19... I'm talking about our opinion in Smith which uh, assumes a much broader definition of cognizable, I think, than you're willing to concede. Except that your definition, Your Honor, respectfully, in the Smith case, again dealt with common law torts and with employees. And what you said in Smith was excluded common law torts, implicitly or explicitly excluded common law torts, would arguably still be cognizable under the Act. But that is a different question than whether constitutional torts are cognizable. And I think we have to go back to 1346B to determine the answer to that question. And the last sentence, of thir or last phrase of 1346B makes very clear what Congress's intent was. Congress's intent was to recognize, to take cognizance of those wrongs for which a private individual would be liable under local law. But at the time Congress legislated uh, 1346B, which was 1946, there were no such thing as constitutional torts recognized. That's true, but you, you can argue one way or the other from that. But uh, just like you say that uh, the, well, you can't really draw much analysis from the 1946 action since Bivens came much later, the whole idea of constitutional torts came much later. That's true, and as a matter of fact, the sue and be sued clause was, that we're talking about for the FSLIC was drafted in the 1930s. But the point we are making is, is this court has held that sue and be sued clauses are to be liberally construed as general waivers of sovereign immunity unless one of three things occur. Unless the, the suit in question is inconsistent with the statutory scheme, unless, uh, an implication, unless an implied restriction on the general waiver is necessary to avoid a grave interference with a governmental perform uh, performance of a governmental function, or unless it was clearly the purpose of Congress to use a sue and be sued clause in a narrow sense. None of those three conditions exist here. So in the 1930s, when Congress created the FSLIC and, and decided how broadly it would waive immunity for the FSLIC, at that point in time, what Congress decided to do was rather than delineate all of the ways... There's no thought at all, Mr. Felice, of anything like a Bivens claim. That's true. What Congress intended to do, Your Honor, was to waive immunity generally for that agency, subject to those exceptions that may later occur. Now, the government has identified that later came the Federal Tort Claims Act, and possibly the Federal Tort Claims Act could have been written to exclude this kind of, a, of an action was not. Congress could today, Congress could today take a look at the issue and could say we're also going to include constitutional torts under the Federal Tort Claims Act with these rules. But when Congress decided to launch this agency, Congress used a broad waiver of sovereign immunity which waives all immunity for the universe subject to such exceptions as may be made later on. 1346B uh, provides liability if a private person would be liable to the claimant in accordance with the law of the place where the act or, or omission occurred. Suppose you have a state that allows no recovery for psychological torts 
must be physical injury. Does that mean that uh, psychological torts are not cognizable under Section 1346B, and therefore the government is liable for all cognizable torts? Well, there, there is a jurisprudence by this court that would say, uh, no, that, it, that that is cognizable. Right. But it seems to me you're repudiating that no, jurisprudence. No, the way I just... Why you're not? The way I justify our position, Your Honor, is that those actions are at least common law torts. I think the court could look at those actions and could say it was clearly the purpose of Congress to include within the Federal Tort Claims Act those actions that are common law torts. That's the meaning of that last phrase. So that if there is a common law tort that is not, that is accepted either implicitly or implicitly by the Federal Tort Claims Act, then that still would be cognizable. But here we're talking about constitutional well, The difference between torts. you and the government is that the government says cognizable means all torts, and you say that cognizable means just common law torts. Is that what we're arguing about, essentially? I, I believe that is one way to put it, Your Honor. Yes. little choice in rotten eggs, it seems to me. Why, why shouldn't we take the government's uh, unrealistic interpretation rather than your unrealistic? It seems to me it means neither one of those things. Well, we, we, we believe that our... Well, I, I would say this about... Uh, your hypothetical. Your hypothetical, well, certainly uh, I, I'm in, in duty-bound to answer it, is not the case that we have today. But you that, are asking us to extend the Bivens doctrine to, uh, so far, uh, new, uh, new territory. Whatever the Tort Claims Act, uh, whatever our role with respect to that is, the Bivens doctrine is a court-created doctrine. And yes, you're asking us to extend that to one class of agency uniquely. Yes, I am, and it's my position that the logic of the Bivens action, namely that, that this court has the primary duty to enforce constitutional, constitutionally protected rights, and that it should not be surprising that Article III courts, in protecting constitutionally protected rights, would, would turn to traditional judicial remedies like damages to, to do that, applies with equal logic to a sue-and-be-suit agency, and that sue-and-be-suit agency has a waiver of sovereign immunity by Congress. So I believe that, I believe that your logic in Bivens make per makes perfect sense for a sue-and-be-suit agency, and there has been a waiver of sovereign immunity. But to get back to what I was saying to Justice Scalia, uh, what, what I was trying to say was, perhaps my answer to the hypothetical is nonsensical. But my answer to the, to the government's position in this case makes sense. No matter how you read the language of that statute, 1346b, you can't squeeze in a constitutional claim. That language says that it is concerned with wrongs for which a private individual would be liable under local law, and that cannot include a constitutional tort. Thank you, Mr. Felice. The case is submitted.